Introduction, Part 2 of Commentary on the Gospel of John, Book 9, by Cyril of Alexandria, translated by Rev. Thomas Randall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 9. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He who lately exhibited to us so strongly his opposition to what Christ was doing, and who expressly refused to allow the washing of his feet, now offers not them only, but also hands and head as well. For if, says he, my refusal to assent to thy wish and thy deliberate purpose, in the matter of washing my feet, is to be followed by my falling away from my fellowship with thee, and by my being excluded from the blessings for which I hope, then I will offer thee my other members also, rather than incur so very frightful a loss. Certainly, therefore, pious devotion was the motive of the former refusal. It was the behavior of one who feared to submit to the action, because there seemed to be something about it which he could not bring himself to tolerate and not at all the conduct of one who set himself in opposition to his master's injunctions. For bearing in mind, as I said, both the dignity of the Saviour and the utter unworthiness of his own nature, he at first refused. But on learning the jeopardy in which he had thus put himself, immediately he hastens to change his will so as to conform to the good pleasure of his master. But look again closely, and accept what was done as a pattern for our prophet. For in spite of having said, Thou shalt never wash my feet, he in a moment changes from his purpose thus expressed, not allowing it to be the uppermost thought in his mind that he ought to appear truthful in the eyes of men by adhering to his own words, but rather, influenced by the warning, that he would find a greater and more grievous loss to be the necessary consequence of holding to what he had said. Therefore, every one ought to guard against using rash and hasty words, and no one ought in a spirit of violent energy to hastily urge a course of action, which on account of its very recklessness may be afterwards bitterly regretted. But if anything should ever happen to be said by any one in such a way, that by persistence in adhering to it something of great value and importance would suffer harm let the speaker in such a case learn from the words before us that it is very much better for him not to preserve consistency and not to vainly carry out an intention merely because he has once given expression to it but rather to use all his efforts to do what will really be profitable to him for every one, I imagine, will allow that it is safer to incur an indictment for inconsistency in our words than to suffer a loss of indispensable blessings. And let swearing be altogether absent from our conversation. For words are often spoken on the spur of the moment and without deliberate intention, and our plans are necessarily liable to occasional change and chance. For surely it may be called a worthy and in very truth an enviable possession to have a discreet tongue that very rarely lapses into unbefitting language. And since even the divine scripture itself has shown to us that the matter is one for violent and tedious struggling, for as it is written, 
the tongue can no man tame. Let us keep the utterance of our words free from oaths. For then, if circumstances compel us to refrain from carrying out something we have said, the blame will be less, and our error will be liable to a less severe indictment. And readily will pardon be granted, I think, even by God himself, for the thoughtless levity of language that is ever besetting us. For who can understand his errors, according to that which is written? Else surely man would utterly perish from the face of the earth, since most easily does language fall away into mistakes of all kinds. For it is a work of the greatest difficulty to keep our tongue under due restraint. 10.11. Jesus saith to him, He that is bathed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew him that should betray him, therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. He draws his illustration from a common incident of ordinary human life, and opportunely contrives the rebuke to the traitor, teaching the man both to repent of his purpose and to change himself to a better mind. For even if Christ's reproaches do not yet convict him of his meditated treachery, yet the saying must carry with it a stern significance. For in testifying to the perfect cleanness of some, but not all, of the disciples, he thereby makes the one who was not clean feel an uneasy suspicion, and points out the presence of a polluted one. For Christ graciously commends the cleanness of his other disciples, as shown by their willing joy in attending on him continually, the hardships they underwent in following him, their firmness in faith, and their fullness of love towards him. On Judas, however, the reproach of his insatiable covetousness and the feebleness of his affection for our Lord Jesus the Christ are branding the ineffaceable stain and steeping him in the pollution of his incomparably hideous treachery. When therefore Christ says, Now ye are clean, but not all, though the language is obscure, yet it conveys a profitable rebuke to the traitor. For although he did not speak plainly, as we have just said, still in each man's heart conscience was sitting in judgment, pricking the sinner to the heart, and bringing home to the guilty one the force of the words according to their necessary meaning. And notice how fully the conduct of Christ is expressive of a certain set purpose and of God-befitting forbearance. For if he had said plainly who it was that would betray him, he would have made the other disciples to be at enmity with the traitor. Judas might thence perhaps have suffered some fatal mischief, and have undergone a premature penalty at the hands of one who was spurred on by pious zeal to prevent the murder of his master by previously putting to death his would-be betrayer. Therefore, by merely giving an obscure hint, and then leaving the conviction to gnaw its way to the conscience, he proved incontestably the greatness of his inherent forbearance. For although he well knew that Judas had no kindly feeling or wise consideration for his master, but that he was full of the poison of devilish bitterness, and even then devising the means whereby he might effect the betrayal, he honored him in the same measure as the rest, and washed even his feet also, 
continually exhibiting the marks of his own love, and not letting loose his anger till he had tried every kind of remonstrance. For thou mayest perceive how this special characteristic also is peculiar to the divine nature. For although God knows what is about to happen, he brings his punishment prematurely on no man, but rather, after bearing with the guilty for the utmost length of needful time, when he sees them in no way profiting thereby, but rather remaining in their self-chosen evil ways, then at length he punishes them, showing it to be the actual result of their perverse folly, and not really an effect of his own counsel or of his will. For instance, Ezekiel on this account says, As I live, saith the Lord, I desire not the death of him that dieth, but rather that he should turn from his evil way and live. Therefore with long-suffering and forbearance, our Lord Jesus the Christ still treats the traitor just as he does his other disciples, although the devil had already put into his heart to betray him. For this also the evangelist was constrained to point out at the outset of the narrative and washes his feet, thus making his impious conduct absolutely inexcusable, so that his apostasy might be seen to be the fruit of the wickedness which was in him. 12, 13, 14, 15 So when he had washed the disciples' feet, and taken his garments, and sat down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Lord and Master, and ye say well, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye also should do as I have done to you. He now clearly explains the object of what he has done, and says that this example of incomparable humility had been set forth for the sake of the benefit therefrom derived for us and in making his reproof of pride unanswerable, he is constrained to put forward the conspicuous example of his own person. For in such an act any one may behold the incomparable greatness of his humiliation. When anything is in itself considered most ignoble, or held to be quite undignified, in what manner could it possibly suffer degradation or pass to a stage of lower esteem? For any one may see that in such a thing, if in nothing else, there is an original and natural baseness. But when we have been observing an object preeminent for its high position, our wonder is excited if we see it suddenly humiliated, for it has descended to a sphere not its own. Therefore it was that our Lord Jesus the Christ felt constrained in giving the lesson of humility to his disciples or rather through them to all that dwell on the earth, not merely to say, As I washed your feet, so also ought ye to do, but rather to bring into conspicuous prominence his peculiar claim to their obedience, and while setting forth to their minds the glory that was his by natural right, by his action to put to shame the vainglorious. For he says, Ye yourselves style me Lord and Master, and ye say well, for so I am. 
and observe how in the midst of his discourse he showed his watchful care for the edification of those who believe and was not unaware of the evil speaking of the unholy heretics for after saying to his own disciples ye style me lord and master then lest any should suppose that he is not by nature lord or master but that he holds the title simply as a mark of honor from those who shall be devoted to him he has emphatically added to dispel such suggestions the words and ye say well for so i am for christ does not hold the title lord as an empty name of honor like we do ourselves when although we remain by nature mere servants we are decorated by favor of others with titles that surpass our nature and merit but he is in his nature lord possessing authority over the universe as god concerning whom it is said somewhere by the voice of the psalmist for all things serve thee and he is by nature master or teacher also for all wisdom cometh from the lord and by him cometh all understanding for inasmuch as he is wisdom he makes all intelligent beings wise and in every rational creature both in heaven and in earth he implants the intelligence that is fitting for it for just as being himself in his nature life he vivifies all things capable of receiving life so also since he is himself the wisdom of the father he bestows on all the gifts of wisdom namely knowledge and perception of all good things by nature therefore the son is lord and master of all things since therefore he seems to say i who am such as this and so mighty in glory have shown you that i shrink not from condescending to this ill-befitting humiliation even to have washed your feet how will ye any longer refuse to do the like for one another and hereby he teaches them not to be ever scornfully declaiming against the honor bestowed on others but each one to think his fellow-servant to excel himself and in every possible respect to be superior and very excellent this teaching is for i do not think any one can show us anything to match a temper that is ever averse to arrogance and nothing so severs brethren and friends as the unbridled passion for miserable and petty dignities for somehow we are always grasping after what is greater and the empty honors of life are ever persuading our easily yielding minds to vault up towards a more brilliant station in order therefore that we may save ourselves from this disease and obtain final relief from so loathsome a passion for the passion for vainglory is a mere fraud and nothing less let us engrave on our inmost hearts the memory of christ the king of all men washing his disciples feet to teach us also to wash one another's feet for by this means every tendency to arrogance will be kept in restraint and every form of worldly vainglory will depart from among us for if he who is by nature lord acts the part of a servant how shall one that is a servant refuse to undergo any of those things that are altogether proper for his condition without suffering in consequence the worst possible penalty sixteen seventeen 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, A servant is not greater than his Lord, neither one that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, blessed are ye if ye do them. Christ proceeds to strengthen the effect of his action by, deriving the same lesson from, laws that may be termed necessary, and shows that the transgression of his beneficial commandment would be in the highest degree dangerous. For when a law is confirmed by an oath, the transgressor of it cannot escape a just accusation. He says, therefore, that it is an offense admitting of no palliation, for servants to refuse to be of the same mind as their own masters, because a passionate longing for greater things, and for things higher than our merits deserve, is really covetousness and nothing else. And just so he would with perfect justice bring the same charge against the apostles, namely, of seeking to be on a higher level than he who commissioned them. For the mind of him who sent them should suffice for them, as the measure of all their glory. But this is nothing else than to use exactly the following argument. You will justly be laughed to scorn before the divine tribunal if through excessive pride you refuse to do for each other the same things that I have done for you, although you have received as your lot the common name of servants, whereas I have been from the beginning in my nature God and Lord. For it would be truly preposterous, or rather not without indication of a share in the most extreme madness, for those who are servants, and therefore inferior to their master and sender, to blush with unsuitable shame at the idea of being servants to one another. If, therefore, ye understand these things, he saith, that is, if ye can clearly perceive the meaning of what I am saying, blessed are ye if ye do them. For it is not the knowledge of virtue, but rather the practice of it, that may well be pronounced worthy of both love and zeal. And I think that perchance it may be even better never at all to have learned, than after so learning, to hamper one's mind with the bonds of indolence, and refuse to carry out in action what one knows to be the best and right course, according to the saying of the Saviour. He that knew not his Lord's will, and did it not, shall be beaten with few stripes but he that knew it and did it not shall be beaten with many stripes. For in the case of a man who has sinned in total ignorance, it would not be at all unseemly for him, if perchance he were being visited with correction for his carelessness, to ask for a partial forgiveness. But in the case of one who knew what he was doing, that knowledge would become grievously weighty towards his condemnation. For though nothing was wanting to enable him, yet he disdained to do what was right and seemly. Knowledge, therefore, must lead to action. For then, clothed with perfect confidence in our citizenship in Christ, we shall receive in due season our most plenteous reward. As an instance of this, the Saviour said that whosoever did and taught his commandments should be called great in the kingdom of heaven and that very justly, for what is wanting to such a man to make his goodness perfect. And whensoever a man can show that he can take to himself full credit for good deeds, 
then surely he will be able to glory in receiving most perfect gifts from God. And so whenever actions go hand in hand with knowledge, then assuredly there is no trifling gain. But when either is lacking, the other will be very much crippled. And it is written, Even faith apart from works is dead. Although the knowledge of God who is one even in nature, and the confession of him in guilelessness and truth is all included in faith, yet even this is dead if it is not accompanied by the bright light which proceeds from works. Surely, therefore, it is utterly profitless merely to know what is good, and yet to be undesirous to practice it at once. For this reason, then, he says that his own disciples, and so also all that believe on him, will be blessed, if they have not only grasped the knowledge of the words spoken by him, but are also fulfilling those words by their deeds. 18. I speak not of you all, for I know those whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth his bread with me lifted up his heel against me. The meaning of these words is involved in no slight uncertainty, for while saying that they shall be blessed, who, knowing what is good, are ever zealous to carry it out in action, he straightway adds, I speak not of all. In these words, as I with many others believe, he hints darkly at the traitor, for in no enviable plight is one who is hated of God, and never would one be reckoned among the blessed who had so degraded his soul as to make it capable of such horrible impiety. And this interpretation of the passage before us is the one currently accepted with most men, but there is besides yet another possible meaning. For as Christ was intending to say, according to the perfect and most holy word of Scripture, He that eateth my bread did magnify himself contemptuously, or lifted up his heel against me. He in some sort explains himself beforehand, and carefully avoids giving pain to the faithful company of the other disciples, by attaching the force of his reproach to one single individual. For since they were all eating his bread, that is, sharing the same feast, and helping to consume the food that he had caused to be provided, therefore he does well in not allowing the minds of the innocent to be crushed by vain fears, and he drives away the bitterness of suspicion by saying, I speak not of you all, for I know whom I have chosen. But, he says, that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth my bread lifted up his heel against me, or did magnify himself contemptuously, according to the voice of the psalmist. Something of this kind I imagine the passage to imply. Seeing therefore that a double meaning is delivered to us by these words, let the devout student test for himself the better and truer sense of them. But now let us comment further on the saying, in the endeavor to confirm the faith of simple folk. For doubts may be felt regarding this passage in two ways. And first, someone will meet us with the objection, If we believe that Christ was all-knowing, why did he choose Judas? And why did he associate him with the other disciples, if he was not unaware that he would be convicted of treachery and fall a prey to the snares of covetousness? 
Furthermore, another will say, And if, as Christ himself says, Judas lifted up his heel against his master on this account, namely, that the scripture may be fulfilled, surely he himself could not be deemed guilty, as responsible for what had happened, but the blame must rest with the power that caused the scripture to be fulfilled. Now it is our duty speedily to give answers in detail to the objections we have mentioned, and to construct by all the arguments in our power the proper defense to be urged against each, for the edification and comfort of those who are not enabled by the resources of their own minds to understand the contents of the divine scripture. And first we have this to say, that if we were to be carried away by such criticisms on all the dealings of God, we should never cease to censure our Maker, but should be ever railing against the God who calls non-existent things into being, and ignorantly depreciating his boundless love to man. For tell me what there is to prevent others also from using, possibly, objections such as this. Why didst thou choose Saul, and anoint him to be king over Israel, when thou knewest that he would altogether disregard thy favor? And why do I say only this? For the plausible nature of the charge thus laid will extend back to Adam, the leader of our race. Some one of those who are thus minded will perhaps say, Why didst thou, the all-knowing, fashion man out of the ground, for thou wast not ignorant that he would fall and transgress the commandment given to him. On the same principle, he would go on to make further clamorous objections on even higher and more important matters. Why hast thou created the nature of angels, well knowing, as God, the senseless decadence into apostasy that would befall some of them? For not all of them have kept their own principality. What result, therefore, would such reasoning lead to? The foreknowledge of God would never have allowed him to appear as creator, nor would the rational creation have even passed it all into existence, so that God would have been sovereign of the irrational and senseless creation only, without anyone to acknowledge him as being in his nature God. Now I think that those who look into the matter cannot help very clearly perceiving that the creator of all things entrusted to the rational among his creatures the guidance of their own purposes, and suffered them to move at the bidding of impulses regulated by themselves, towards whatsoever object each might individually choose, after discovering by test the best possible course. Those, therefore, that have inclined rightly to the side of good, preserve safe their own fair reputation, and remain sharers of the good things that have been allotted to them, and find themselves undisturbed in their tranquillity of mind. But those that are corrupted in their own evil thoughts, and are dragged down to lawlessness, as it were by irresistible torrents of passions, endure the penalty that befits their crime, and, justly convicted on the charge of their utter ingratitude, will be subjected to severe and endless retribution you will find also the nature of the angels to have been created with similar possibilities and limitations. For those that kept their own principality 
have their abiding place and station in the midst of all beatitude sure and steadfast. But they who by their proneness to evil have fallen gradually away from their ancient glory are cast down to hell in chains of darkness, as it is written, and are kept under the judgment of the great day. In like manner was the first man, that is, Adam, created in the beginning, for he was in paradise and amid the highest delights, namely those that are spiritual, and in the presence of the glory of God. And he would have remained in the enjoyment of the good things that were bestowed on his nature at the beginning, if he had not been turned away to apostasy and disobedience, most rashly transgressing the commandment enjoined from above. Thus, too, God anointed Saul to be king, for he was in the beginning a not ignoble character. When, however, his conduct showed that a change had come over him, God removed him from his honorable rank and regal splendor. In like manner Christ chose Judas, and associated him with the holy disciples, since he was certainly gifted at first with a capacity for discipleship. But when after a while the temptations of Satan succeeded in making him captive to the base greediness for gain, when he was conquered by passion and had become by this means a traitor, then he was rejected by God. This, therefore, was in no way the fault of him who called this man to be an apostle. For it lay in the power of Judas to have saved himself from falling, namely, by making the more excellent choice and transforming his whole heart and soul so as to become a sincere follower of Christ. And to the second of the objections we are considering we make this answer. Let no one suppose, as do some ignorant persons, that the oracles delivered by the holy prophets are carried onward to final accomplishment simply in order that the scriptures may be fulfilled. For if this is truly the case, there will be nothing to prevent those who have minutely shaped their conduct according to the letter of Scripture from finding not invalid excuses for sin, or rather from actually making out that they have never erred at all. For if it needs must have been, one will say, that the Scriptures should be fulfilled by such and such things, surely those who were the instruments of the fulfillment must be free from all censure. The divine scripture, therefore, in such a case must have appeared especially as a minister of sin, urging men on, as it were, by force, to the deeds spoken of by it, in order that what was uttered in days of old might really come to pass. But, because of this, I think the argument is very full of blasphemy. For who could ever be so utterly void of proper reason as to suppose that the word of the Holy Ghost should become to any a patron of sin. Therefore, we do not believe that the deeds of any were done simply for this reason, namely, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But the Holy Ghost has spoken in perfect knowledge as to what will happen, in order that, when the time comes for the event, we may find in the prediction which describes the event a pledge to establish our faith and may thenceforward hold it without hesitation. And as our discussion of this question in another book is very full, it seems now somewhat superfluous to linger any longer in lengthy discourses on the matter. End of Introduction Part 2